And Revelation focuses on the heavens. Revelation turns our gaze upon the heavens this morning. We'll be in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 4 focused on the throne room of God alone. Revelation chapter 5 focused on the Lamb who was worthy to open the scroll with the seven seals. Revelation 6 began to open the seven seals, and we saw the first four seals open, and you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse there. The fifth seal, when it was opened, the focus moved from things happening on earth to the martyrs under the altar in the throne room of heaven, crying for justice over the blood that has been spilled. The sixth seal declared another level of judgment, but it wasn't war or famine on the earth. The sixth seal revealed a judgment of, the, uh, of a cosmic upheaval where there are great storms, where there are earthquakes, where the, the whole earth basically is shaken by natural disasters. And uh, the revelation explained it as a fig tree being shaken. And the fruit just falls right off before it's time. It's kind of like a cosmic upheaval that happens here when the girls and the guys retreats come together. And you walk into the church and you're like, what? Looks like the judgment has come. What a mess. Wreaks havoc. Well, there's one seal left. And we have, we're not going to get to that seal this morning. Because before the Lord, or in this book of Revelation, that seal is opened and revealed. God has something else for us. Chapter 7 offers to us what we might call an interlude. Not necessarily like a pause or an intermission in things that are happen, happening. But it's, it's a shift of focus once again. It reminds me a little bit about if you watch baseball, which I don't watch much of, but when I have, you watch baseball, and the camera's always on the field, and you get to see the players and what they're doing, but the whole time as you're watching the players, there are the announcers up in the booth, and they just call it, call it, and call it as it goes, and they talk about each player, and you almost forget they're, they're there, but every once in a while, the camera will go up to the booth, and you get to see who's actually calling or announcing the game, and this is a little bit of what we see here in chapter 7. We can't see two places at one time, and so uh, Revelation will focus on what God's doing on the earth, but there are also other things that are taking place concurrently in the heavens. This chapter introduces us to what is known as the 144,000. What is 144,000? What does it mean? They are in heaven, and they bear the seal of God on their foreheads. Do we have to have this seal in order to get to heaven? Are we a part of the 144,000? Are there any more people in heaven in addition to the 144,000? Well, we're going to talk about that this morning, but before we get to that, we're going to hear what God has to say about the activity of His angels on the earth. So let's read. I'm just not going to read all seven verses this morning. We'll just read the first few and address those. And first we find the angels. So after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, 
that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So before we jump into the 144,000, I think this text is a great example of how cautious we need to be when reading the book of Revelation in what we pick and choose to interpret as literal. Because what we see immediately here are angels. And they are holding or they're, they're positioned at the four corners of the earth. Now there's a problem with that if we're going to take it literal, right? Because the earth doesn't have four corners to it. And so we have to wrestle with these kind of things. The earth doesn't have four corners, so we have to be careful about what else we take literally, not just in this text, but the whole book of Revelation. That's what we're constantly um, faced with in this apocalyptic book. And what we find is a lot of times when we're trying to work through it, it's difficult because we want to take some things literal here, but then we don't want to take them literal when they're mentioned over here. And so we have to wrestle and balance ourselves with being consistent A lot of times some of the theories and the positions or the systems that we see in helping us understand the book of Revelation uh, are very tempted to fit things inconsistently so that they make sense, but unfortunately they're not always consistent in the interpretations. So it's, It's an easy thing to do. And most of us know it's common knowledge that by now we know there's not four corners of the earth. We've moved on for that. But I want to um, mention that it's sad to say that there are, the, the world's gotten so bad these days, and there are some Christians that are so disillusioned and so disgusted with, with today's politics, with uh, today's news and misinformation. There's a small resurgence of what is called the flat earth theory. So believe it or not, there are those that are choosing to take the Bible literally. And the reason is because they're just so disgusted with everything going on. They've been burned. They've been lied to so many times. They just say, I'm tired of everything going on out there. I'm just going to stick to the Bible. And whatever God says and the way He says it, I'm going to believe it. And what a sad commentary that, that times get so bad that people have to retreat so deeply to where they would take that kind of position. It's a commentary on our culture. So, you know, with all the plethora of evidence otherwise out there, as unbelievable as it is, it's just very indicative, I think, of our broken times and our broken world. So to be sure, the Bible is the answer. The Bible has the answers. The Bible is absolutely true and it's reliable. And it's timeless. So the truths, they're they're not cultural truths in here. What God says is timeless for all people in all times. But we do need to be on our toes because we have to understand correctly what God says, what God reveals. Otherwise, we could be believing things that aren't true or they're presented to us in the Bible in that way. 
Paul says to Timothy, watch your life and watch your doctrine. Even in the book of Revelation, we have to be on our toes about these things. Now, I want you to know that I humbly preach through this book. I don't think you've heard me come uh, through very dogmatic about things that are, unless they're very evident and they're revealed in other parts of Scripture about God. But we have to watch our life and we have to watch our doctrine. And the Lord Jesus warned us about different teachings that will come along and they'll, we'll be faced with them. People of all ages in Matthew 24. And he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So we just want to know as believers that there is this, this pull, almost a magnetic pull, and it's a pull of evil to lead us astray. And the enemy is behind all of that. So with that said, if it's not literally true, then what is God speaking to His people here in this text? Well, He is describing things as they appear to us. And if we're going to be honest, the world does seem flat. It doesn't seem like an I mean, when I walk from here to there, I'm walking on a flat surface, right? And when you sail or you're in the ocean, you're on the seas, as far as you can tell, you look and the ocean looks very, very flat. So this is how things appear to us. We use it all the time. Other literature uses it all the time. It's phenomenology. And that is how things appear, but doesn't necessarily mean that that's how they exist in real life. Back in the day, you know, sailors really were concerned about sailing too far. Because you're going to come to the edge. And all of a sudden, off you go to your peril. And it makes sense because as far as we can see, that's what we think it is. It's kind of like when you put a stick into the water. It looks like that stick hits the water and bends, doesn't it? You'd swear on it, but it doesn't. It's phenomenology. It's how things appear. Or, how about this one? When you stand um, at railroad tracks and you look down, those tracks become one, don't they? No. If they became one, there'd be a lot of train wrecks. They don't. But it looks exactly that way. And it's okay to think about things and talk about things as they appear or as they look because it, it actually enables us to all be on board. So it wasn't until... Um, really after Christ that astronomers began to make connections and calculations and so forth to realize that the earth is a sphere and not something flat. But the Bible uses phenomenology. It uses it all the time. I've read my share of articles from skeptics about the Bible. One of the things they jump on the scriptures about is say, yep, see it says that the world has four corners. It's flat earth. And we know that's not true, so therefore the Bible can't be true. So see how important it is to interpret the Bible correctly and come at these texts correctly. Now it's also interesting that when I was um, preparing for this sermon and I happened to check the weather, I noticed that it said that the sunrise, let's see, I recorded it in here, the sunrise was going to be at 5.54 that morning and the sunset was going to be at 8.25 p.m. What's that? Does the sun rise? That's phenomenology. The sun doesn't rise, right? Something else is spinning. The earth is spinning. 
It, it, it appears to us because we stand here and we see the sun go up and then we stand and we see it go down. But in scientifically, that's not exactly what's happening. But it's okay and we don't, we don't uh, blast the papers for misinformation because they list for us that the time when the sun will rise and set. So the same thing happens in Scripture and we use it in life all the time and that's what we have here. Uh, we have four angels. They've been dispersed by God to the four corners of the earth, basically all over the earth. They're positioned in a, in a place of strategy and they've been given power to control the winds. And it makes sense too. How else would you describe it? Because we have north, uh, south, east, and west. The idea is it's covering the globe. It's not that the winds only come from those directions. That's not scientific. But we understand directions in that sense. So what do the four winds mean if it's not to be taken literally? Well, it means that by God's power, He has given these angelic agents the ability to stop the winds, to not let the winds blow. However you want to picture that in your mind, use your imaginations. But they're holding the winds back. And there's a reason for this. They're holding the winds back because God wants to do something else, and that is to seal the servants, his servants on the forehead, give them that seal. And he, for whatever reason, wants to do it during calm times, during a calm season. So what is the most important thing to understand here is that God's angels are very active carrying out God's sovereign will in the world. And we don't always see it. We don't always understand exactly how it works. But, but rest assured that things, even as winds and storms and earthquakes and the judgments that we read previously, angels are involved. God is doing something. There are a lot of things happening in the heavenly places. And we saw the same thing with the four horsemen. We didn't take that literally like we got to wait for, we're going to be down here waiting for a different color horse for the next judgment. But the judgments are wrought by God and he uses his angelic angels to, say it, to send them. I think that's why the Apostle Paul in the New Testament tells us that the things that, you know, the real battle, it looks like it's flesh and blood because we're in the middle of it and we feel it and it hurts and we bleed and, and our, our brains hurt. But the real battle that's taking place is in the heavens. The, the, the authorities that are greater than we are. Through the hand of the sovereign God. There's a battle that rages and we don't always get to see it. We know it and we sense it. And we pray about it, but we don't always get to experience it in the reality as it takes place. So the scripture says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And we know winds can be very damaging. Uh, we've had winds blow through here. I've, I've lost a lot of trees at my property because of winds. We read about them in the news all the time. Blow over trees. And so God is commanding, not now. Don't let them. Hold the winds at bay. God has given the angels the power to do this while He seals His saints. But not only are they given power, these angels, to hold back the winds, but one angel is given another power. And that is he's given a power to seal God's servants 
on their forehead. It's a seal. The seal is something that you, you use to secure something. We read in the story of Christ, the tomb was sealed. You know, it's, it's to verify that he was safe and secure in there, didn't get out. Of course, they rolled a, a stone over it as well. So it makes it safe. You're sealed. It secures something. It makes it reliable. And God seals the saints. We don't seal God or we don't seal ourselves. We don't make ourselves secure in Christ. He seals us. He makes us secure. So to be sealed by God is to be saved by God. To be offered the security of salvation. And, and uh, safety from His wrath. And here's what I find interesting about this text. And you know me, I have avoided the book of Revelation for many years. So I'm not an expert. Um, I, I, I avoided it because it was difficult. But now I'm reading it and I have to get into it. And the thing that I find very interesting in this text is that most Christians know and fear the mark of the beast more than they even know that there is such a thing as the mark of God on the forehead. Now, I know that when I was a young Christian, you know, the speculation of 666 never ends. And I remember just, I don't know specifically, but I just got this vibe as a young Christian. Watch out for 666. Don't touch it. Don't get near it. It's dangerous. It, it represents Satan. You know, and even today when it pops up, I'm like, whoa, 666, what do I do with that? Would I buy something that costs $666? Would I move to a location on 666-something street? Would I live there? I mean, how eerie does it get? What happens if somebody goes out on a drunken stupor and just in total rebellion gets 666 tattooed somewhere in their body? Does that guarantee you're going to hell? You got the mark. There's no escaping it now. How does all this stuff work? And yet, many Christians didn't even know there was such a thing as a mark on the forehead by God. So why is that the case? Well, I think simply because for whatever reason, through the ages, the church has emphasized one way more than the other. It's just a matter, they're both there, they're both in Scripture, they just the church for whatever reason. And I would, I'm suspicious that probably to instill fear to keep people out of hell. Fear tactics sometimes work, unfortunately, and manipulation as well. So one has been emphasized over the other. But the seal has to do with that safety, the security, and ownership. So for God to seal you means I own you. I put, or the, to put the mark, he's going to mark. That means you're mine. I own you. It's a wonderful thing. We want to be marked out by God as God's child. So it says you're owned by God. He knows you. Once you, you were not known, now you are my people. You're safe. I bring you in. You are mine. I will care for you to the very end. So the angels are given charge over the wind. This one angel is given charge over the marks that will take place. So we're thinking about the marks, and it is something that's very interesting to Christians, and that's one of the reasons a lot of us even bother to read about the book of Revelation. We want to know about those marks and 
and uh, how do you get in, and what do I have to avoid, and these kind of things. The mark of the beast will become much clearer in chapters 13 and 14 when we reach them. But I do want to mention just a few more things about them because of the uh, interest, information, misinformation. Let's just think about it for a little while. The language here is drawn from Ezekiel chapter 9. Wouldn't you know an Old Testament what vision? An Old Testament vision. They pop up everywhere in the New Testament. And the book of Revelation just kind of uses Scripture and, and ideas and concepts. It never quotes Scripture in its actual context, um, the whole thing. It's just picking ideas out from it. So Ezekiel 9, 1 through 7, in this vision, God is sending terrible judgment to His own people because they are living in abomination. They've rebelled against Him. Even the priests in the temple, they're living in sin and disobedience and rebellion. And so He gives Ezekiel a vision of judgment. But in this vision, God holds the judgment back. So verse 1 in chapter 9, He cried in my ears with a loud voice saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case on his waist. So you have the agents of judgment, and among them is another agent, but he's going to be the one, this agent's going to be the one to mark. And that's what they had in that day, however they did it. And this is just a vision, but however they would mark, you know, in our day we might do a spray paint or something, or a permanent marker, El Marco, to mark somebody out. Verse 4, the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after them and strike. Your eye shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old man outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So that's where the judgment begins. The sanctuary of God. So we see here that the, the reference to Ezekiel's vision. It's not to be taken literally. It's just a vision. The fact that he hasn't even happened yet. But what we can take literally is that God judges His people. God is aware of what we do. He's aware of the events of the world. He has a standard of holiness and He is aware every time that standard is transgressed. And we have to give an account to these kind of things. It's very clear in Scripture. What's also clear is that He has agents, that He has uh, angels, people, or beings in place uh, to execute His judgment when they come. The idea here is that unless you bear God's seal, you're going to face God's wrath in both of these instances. Unless you have that seal of God. Well, who had the seal of God in this vision? Those that moaned and groaned over sin. Those that moaned and groaned over the disrespect giving to the whole of God. 
Those that moan and groan over people who disrespected Him, who went their own way, even in their acts of worship. Because that's a sign of a heart that loves God and wants to honor God. So He grants His seal to the faithful, to those who mourn. We'll see as this book continues that Satan's idea to seal people, by the way, is basically counterfeit copycat of what God has revealed here and what God does. As a matter of fact, as this book is unrevealed, we get farther in, you'll see how much of a copycat Satan is, even copycatting the Holy Trinity. And it becomes very interesting when he talks about the beasts and the witnesses, how he is basically doing his evil version of what God does in a good way. What God does in a good way is he seals those are his. It's a mark of ownership. Well, that's what Satan's going to do. I'm going to seal those that are mine. And it comes down to whose seal you have. Uh, Who owns you in that sense? Who are you living for? What side have you decided for your life? What have you given your heart to? So the signs here... We just want to be careful. We also remember in the Old Testament that the visible sign of circumcision did not necessarily mean that a person was a child of God. We want to be careful about getting caught up in visible signs and the symbols that they carry. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, In Him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and in Him, when you also believed you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's another example. You're marked as God. When you by faith believe, you're marked as God's when by faith you believe in Jesus Christ and you present of your sin. You have whatever mark you need to be of the Lord. And that's how it works for us. So basically, it's more of an internal thing. That's what we want to take the most seriously. There's, there's not an external mark that we will bear that will get us into heaven. You know, you can't just write something on yourself and, say, and it work vice versa for hell. If we happen to do something very foolish and in defiance one day get some kind of tattoo or we, we live at this address or the number 666 somehow are upon us, that is, it, it's more difficult than that. It's more complex than that. Scripture always says it's a matter of the heart. And a lot of the things that are the most meaningful take place in here. Because the the external signs do not actually always depict the reality of the situation. Just like circumcision, just like baptism. Just because a person or a Christian gets baptized, which is an external sign of an internal work of God that you can't see, it doesn't guarantee a person's going to heaven. They have to have a heart for God. They have to have that inner, true, spiritual experience. We're always wrestling with what to take literal, what to do. And a lot of times it's with a good heart. In the the Old Testament, uh, the Lord told Moses to tell the people, remember, these are my commands. They're very important. They're so important I want them to uh, wrap them around their wrists and put them on their foreheads, the the law of God. And so some Jews take that literally even to today, and they have 
scriptures on their foreheads and on their wrists. They, they wear them that way. But most understand that text to be symbolic. And the idea is that you want the Word of God all over you. You want to wear it. You want to think it. You want it to be a part of you. And we could take it even farther and talk about the New Covenant where God writes the law not on stone but on the tablet of our heart. It's always about getting things in so that we become the being and the person that Christ intends for us to come. And the emphasis is not external. It's so easy to do the external things to make us look like one thing. But God is not fooled. If we have His seal, we have a seal and we are God. What comes to us time and time again, we are God's. What comes to us time and time again in this book is that you either have the, you're, you're living for the devil or you're living for God. And depending on who you're living for, you're going to face wrath one way or another, right? You're either going to face the devil's wrath for living for God or you're going to face God's wrath because you did not worship Him. You lived in sin. You lived for the devil. So that's what we want to think about the most. And then that brings us to the 144,000. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. John goes on to say, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, and so forth, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and of Benjamin were sealed. Now we have what looks here like a very nice, neat list of the 12 tribes and exactly how many members were included in each of these tribes. We come to this, and as you can Imagine there are multiple interpretations of what this means. How much of it is symbolic? How much of this is to be taken literally? Well, one interpretation is Jehovah's Witness interprets this as there are literally only 144,000 of the best of the best saints, servants of God, that will be sealed and make it to heaven. The rest of us will live on the new heavens and the new earth. So they take it Literally, only 144,000 will be up in the heavens. Ask them that next time they come to your door. Uh, if, I, if I believe in this, do I go to heaven? See what they say. Be interesting. I've never done it because, I, like I said, I've been avoiding this book for a long time. We come in here. Uh, dispensationalists believe that the 144,000 uh, are Jews. Uh, they will suffer martyrdom. Martyrdom during the seven-year tribulation after the church is raptured. So they would take it literally in that sense that they are actual martyred Jews. Uh, they believe that they're a distinct group of saints. That all that you're saved, if you're saved, you're saved, but this is a distinct group of saints, of Jewish saints. Another interpretation says that the Jews are only symbolically listed there. They're not actual Jews. Rather, they represent the proportion of the people of God who 
were martyrs. And it could be way, way more than that. And then another position says that the 144,000 and the great multitudes are all the people of God. It's just this is a different way of saying the same thing. Now later on, we, in verse 8, you talk about the great multitudes. That's also a list or description of people of God. In chapter 14, verse 1, they would say, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. That's, that's up in chapter 14. So they're the same. Now in that chapter 14, when they're talking about the 144, they're talking about all the people of God, not a distinct group of Jewish believers. So they would say that is symbolic, but not just symbolic, but um, using the same terminology or different terminology to describe the same thing. Now when I look at this, I see the 12 tribes. It looks pretty nice and neat. I mean, uh, in this vision, he went through the effort of, list, of listing them off. And yet if you look at them a little closer, you will begin to see anomalies in them. And it begins to get very complicated because there are some names missing here. And there are some names that are added. They're not usually listed like this when they're listed in the Old Testament. Where's Dan? The tribe of Dan, did, they not, did no one from Dan make it to heaven in that sense? Uh, why is Joseph mentioned as well as his son Manasseh but not Ephraim? See that, that, so what I'm saying is it looks nice and neat, but when you begin to dig into it, it begins to fall apart a little bit. Personally, I prefer the third option as I think through it. I think it's the, another way to describe all the people of God is the 144,000 and the great multitude, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's the same thing. John has done this before in just the previous chapters when he describes the Lamb. Who is worthy to open the scroll? And what do you see? You see the lion. The lion is described, but it is actually the slain Lamb. It's uh, mixed metaphors that describe the same person, Jesus Christ, the lion and the lamb. So the 144,000 in Revelation is consistently used symbolically. And of course, it's the 12 times the 12,000 to get your 144,000. And in this book, I believe that we will see countless times that it represents the whole people of God. And we get into a few problems if we're not careful when we begin to make distinctions because the work of Christ was, was distinctly to make us one people, to make us one unit, one bride, one church, and to remove the distinctions that were made in the world. And only the blood of Christ can do that. Ephesians 4.30 says that all believers are sealed for the day of redemption. So do we have different seals? Like is the mark on the forehead different than the seal of the other saints for the day of redemption? You see, we, you, when you begin to unfold it and unpack it, we get into a lot of difficulties if we try to fit things too tight and neat in a box. I think it's a broader idea of symbolism. Again, we have anomalies in the tribes when we look at it. You know, why is Judah listed before Reuben when Reuben's the firstborn? What happened to Dan? 
And there's a lot of other things. Also, technically speaking, if we want to get real technical and, and literal, the genealogical records of the tribes where you could prove the purity of your tribe, that you belong to that tribe, they were destroyed in 70 A.D. So all of the most official records that kept those things straight were destroyed. So technically speaking, I'm, uh, technically speaking, these tribes can or people cannot be traced back to their tribe. There was intermarrying that took place. So how would we ever know for sure after all these years uh, who belonged to what tribe? So the point is it has difficulties. There are a lot of hurdles that we have to climb over if we're going to take all of this literally. Let me give you one more scripture as we wind down here. So we think about the main benefits of the gospel. Romans 2, 28-29, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So I see two things here that are covered in this. We have to be careful about the visible seals. They don't always depict what the actual case is. And also that Christ's sacrifice uh, created a unity in the people of God that's never been known. The blood of Christ does that. So if this is correct, then what we have is, in the end, we have a description and a challenge that judgment falls on people who sin against God. God keeps account of everything that we do, and we will not escape His wrath. We're also constantly reminded in Revelation again that either way we're going to face a wrath. So it might be the wrath of Satan. One of the things they say about the number is that if you don't have the number 666, you can't buy and sell. In other words, your life is ruined. You're going to face the wrath of Satan because you don't bear his ownership, whatever that might mean. If it's not a literal number, which I don't think it would be, that doesn't mean that Satan can't use dictators or the state to impose things on people so that you have to meet certain restrictions in order to live rightly or be taken care of. So in this final picture we see all the people of God that have been sealed cared for and owned by the Lord and we see that God through all of these visions he goes to great lengths great lengths to judge evil he goes into great detail of how he is aware of it and what he will do about it but he also goes to great lengths to save, to spare, to call, to care for, to preserve, to secure His loved ones. Those that call on His name from the heart genuinely give their lives to Him. A true confession, living a real life. He goes to great lengths to save our souls from His wrath. None in that sense who bear the true seal of God, will be left behind. May God bless the preaching of His Word this morning.